Good morning. This morning we're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. As we study the the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the churches around Ephesus, we've seen in the last two Sundays that Paul has transitioned from a theology of grace to a lifestyle of grace. We're talking about living as those saved by grace, but letting that influence our lifestyle I've referred to this as a practical theology. Our beliefs should impact our actions and our living. So I want you, I want you to imagine for a minute, just to set this up today, uh, just imagine um, a teenager, her family moves to a new town and a new school. So she's in a new town, she's in a new school, everything's new. But she's an athlete, she's a good athlete, and so naturally she makes the team in her new school. Curious thing though, the night of the first game, as the team comes out of the locker room, there she is, ready to play, but she's wearing her old school's jersey. New team, new school, but she's wearing the old jersey from her former school, her former team. Um, now, you know, after the game, the coach is kind of, you know, scratching his head, thinking to himself, ah, she must have been nervous. Maybe, maybe she was being nostalgic, you know, for her old, her old place. And frankly, with all the transition of moving, probably overwhelmed, it'll pass. It doesn't pass. I want you to imagine that every game she keeps doing this. New team old jersey. And not only are her teammates confused and the fans and the parents confused, but it seems like she herself is confused. And that type of identity crisis, let's use that as an illustration of an identity crisis that seemed to have been of the greatest concern to the authors of the New Testament, John Peter and Paul seem to be talking to the churches in the first century about an identity crisis that they kept falling back into as congregations and as individuals. It is fitting for the Christian to take off what no longer fits. And we're going to look at the world-like self that we carry around in our lives until God intervenes. 
but we're also going to look at the godlike self that we inherit as his adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And finally, we're going to talk about the Christ-like self. The old self, the world-like self, the God-like self, and of course, what makes the God-like self possible, the Christ-like self. So, the world-like self is, if you'll allow me to continue with the metaphor, the world-like self is out-of-date clothing for the Christian. The presence of the grace of God in a Christian's life demands that we all grow up in our faith. We talked about that last week. So Paul goes on now to say in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When he uses the word Gentile, of course the church has believing Jews and believing Christians in it. So when he uses the word Gentiles, the apostle Peter did the same thing. He means non-Christian pagans. They're, they're pagan neighbors, okay? Not, he is not referring to Gentile Christians, but he's referring to the, the non-believing world around them, their neighbors. And what he says to them essentially is, you must no longer live as you used to live. And now he adds further descriptors of that old lifestyle that they have come out of, that worldly lifestyle. He uses words like, in the, in the next verse, futility, or, or darkened minds, alienated from God. He uses the word ignorance. He's, he uses the phrase hardness of hearts. He's being very critical of their old way of life. He's being very critical of the way the world lives. Now, I want to give you a, a little qualification there. It's, it's not that Paul's saying that the people in this world are the absolute worst they can be in every way all the time. That's not what Paul is saying there by being critical. Paul knew that all people are created in the image of God, no matter where they're from and who they are and what they believe or how, how they behave all people bear God's image, which means that all human beings carry within them an inerrant dignity and glory because they are created in the image of God. So Paul's not saying it's absolutely the worst it can be all the time. Rather, Paul is trying to describe in very realistic, vivid terms what I'm going to call God-proofing. Society and the world, human hearts, individuals and families, communities, God-proof themselves. God-proofing is, is when the human heart seals itself off from the influence of God. And, and that God-proofing, that, that sealing off of God's light and truth and grace in your heart, it leads to deeper forms of worldliness, Paul says until a person's conscience is impaired, until an individual or a couple or a family or a community or an entire society, their conscience is impaired. So Paul would say in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And he uses the word callous to describe what the worldly mindset is like what we used to be like. So think about calloused feet, 
right? If, if you're camping or you're walking on, on stony ground, you want calloused feet because calloused feet become desensitized to rocky ground. But a, but a, a callous conscience, Paul says, becomes desensitized to morality. For instance, John Calvin put it this way. Basically, he gets at the heart of what Paul is trying to say about a calloused human conscience. Calvin wrote, the voice of God proclaimed by an accusing conscience, meaning when you've done something wrong or you think in a way or act in a way or live in a way that is contrary to God's good design, Calvin wrote that accusing conscience still continues to be heard, but instead of producing its proper effects, appears rather to harden them against all admonition. The callous conscience loses the ability to distinguish evil from good. The callous conscience cannot discern that so that it will begin to praise and honor what is evil and shun and hate what is actually good. And so when the opinions, actually, let me go back and say, um, the Lord Jesus actually talked about this. And it, it may be in a place you'd never thought of before. One of the most famous things Jesus ever said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that very same passage, Jesus continued, and this is the judgment, or this is the verdict, right? He's saying, this is actually how things in the world are, even though I have come. He says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So Paul's just affirming what Jesus has already said. And so the accumulation, the accumulating social impact of sin on an entire society or an entire community has long-lasting consequences, and it degrades further and further as the collective conscience becomes more calloused and impaired over time. So um, when the opinions and the desires and the fears of many calloused consciences unite, right? So now a team of calloused consciences or a culture, a society, a nation of calloused consciences, right? The aggregate effect of that is that society can exhibit a mob-like resistance to God's light and truth. Paul had experienced this in, of all places, Ephesus itself. Years before, when Paul planted a church in Ephesus and stayed there for a couple of years, discipling that church into help, it happened to him, and it's one of the re main reasons why he finally had to leave. If you look at Acts chapter 19, you discover that the silversmith guild in Ephesus incited a citywide riot against the small, growing Christian church. Because as Christianity had begun to grow in Ephesus, guess what happened? People st stopped buying little silver idols of Artemis, the famous god and protector of the city. As Christianity grew in that community, the worldly impact began to lose its hold on that community. And obviously, what's bad for business is going to have an immediate impact. And so the silversmiths, instead of having a strike, they incited a riot. 
so that the whole city was in an uproar. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 19. And a giant mob rounded up all the Christians. And, and what they did was they shouted out loud. Uh, Luke in, in the book of Acts tells us for hours they shouted, chanted again and again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again and again and again and again, so that they couldn't, they wouldn't even let Paul and his associates explain their case um, in public. And so you see there the accumulated aggregate social impact of many calloused consciences. It's it's happening in our own society. Uh, for for instance, um, uh, this this has been developing over the last year, but but just a week ago. National Hockey League goalie James Reiner uh, was just criticized last week for not wearing a Pride Night practice jersey before the game. He plays, he's the starting goalie for the San Jose Sharks. And so he was, uh, which is uh, pretty, pretty common uh, nowadays, um, he, was, he was criticized. The criticism was public and the, critici- the cri- criticism was severe. Uh, although his, his public statement on why he had chosen to not wear uh, a Pride Night jersey was very gracious and very respectful, uh, but he was naturally criticized severely. But the criticism was widespread. Everywhere you looked in the news, the criticism from people who knew nothing about hockey, but you know, were journalists here, there, and everywhere, uh, were, were very uh, critical of Mr. Reimer and other professional players who have chosen to do the same thing. And for an example, the Seattle Times uh, covered it with an article, and the title of their article was, James Reimer, other NHL players who decline to wear Pride Night jerseys deserve scrutiny. And I just want to focus on the, word, on the phrase, deserve scrutiny. There's the aggregate impact of a desensitized conscience in a society. See, the assu- deserve scrutiny. So the assumption is that godliness is wrong and a gracious uh, nonconformity is hateful. You see the subtlety of what Paul is talking about here? Because Paul is saying that such broad assumptions, if, if somebody just respectfully and quietly and simply declines to wear a jersey, it is assumed that they are hateful and bigoted. And so Paul is saying that such broad assumptions are the result of a calloused conscience that accumulates and develops and fills and permeates through a society. Paul then reminds Christians that the world's way of living does not fit them anymore. And he says in verse 21, but that is not the way you learn Christ. In fact, they were taught, Paul had taught them, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. They had been saved by grace, Paul had told them in chapter 2, therefore the old jerseys must come off. And it's not just a matter of behavior and how we act. That's immediately what we think. I'm a Christian now, i got to stop doing that. Of course it's that. But it's more than that. It's I'm a Christian now... I've got to stop thinking that way. I have to stop prioritizing certain things, certain values in my life. 
in my decision making. And I have to begin to curb and, and alter my relationships if those relationships are causing me uh, to, 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 to leave the New Jersey off. If you're a Christian, the new you is growing. Accept it. If you're a Christian, the new you is growing and you have to update your wardrobe. You say, I'm still speaking in metaphors, it makes sense. You have to update your wardrobe mentally, spiritually, and socially. The godlike self in you is your new wardrobe and it's been financed by the riches of God's grace. Another expression from chapter one. The riches of his grace has furnished you with a brand new wardrobe. Think of your old self attire as like those clothes that are still hanging in your closet and you don't wear them anymore. And you're just like looking at them like, when am I going to bring these to goodwill? Or when am I going to, you know, hand them down or throw them out or, you know, as Chris showed some of Dan's clothing, you know, when am I going to burn these things? Right? Our old self attire is still hanging in our closets, but they're no longer a good fit for us. We've outgrown them. The seams are starting to tear. We should wear the clothes that God made us. The clothes that God made us. So, okay, here we go. Okay, let's, let's talk about it. My outfit today. So, I was putting my pants on today because they're kind of new pants, and I realized, huh, I look like I did in in grade school. So I went to a private school uh, run by a Baptist church from kindergarten through fifth grade. And guess what? We had uniforms, navy and white. This is what I wore every day of my life. It felt like every day of my life for six years. And we had, but we had a green and red argyle tie, not, not, one, not a floral pattern like this. So this is what I looked like every day of my life. And as I'm growing now, I, and then my mother will remember this, because they had to order these clothes. You had to order your new, because you can get a white, you can get white shirts anywhere, but the pants were specific and you had to order them. Well, I kept growing fifth grade. I kept splitting my pants. I was that kid. I was the kid in fifth grade who bent down and split the seam in the back of his pants under the belt. And now I'm walking around all day with a split pants in the back. This is when tidy whities were the thing. Like you didn't have boxer briefs then. So, so like, the, what Paul is saying is you have a new wardrobe now. The old self, the old attire, don't take it out of the closet because you're going to put it on and the seams are going to tear. Paul says in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, God has tailored something fitting for his kids. And his name is embroidered on every garment. So put it on. That's the Christian life. That is walking in faith as a disciple of Christ. You put on and you keep on the newly outfitted self that God has made for you. Put on is an important expression. It's an important imperative Put on, it really, it's the difference between God's sovereignty and your responsibility, because we always talk about that. Paul told us in chapter two, you have been saved by grace, not your works. It is the gift of God so that nobody may burst. burst. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. 
so that no pants may burst. Sorry. That's not what I meant. Not what I meant there. He said, he said, you've been saved. It is the grace of God. It is a gift so that no one may boast, right? That is the sovereignty of God. And yet, he says, he says you are God's workmanship, chapter 2, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works that you may walk in them. Walking in the new life that God has prepared for you, that God has outfitted for you, is actively putting on and keeping on your new outfit. Put on is the difference between sovereignty and responsibility. Grace alone has created the new me. But guess what? Big boys dress themselves. You've got to dress yourself as you grow up in Christ. And it's not a status issue. It's not like I'm putting on my Jesus clothes to earn my way into heaven. No, putting on the new self is evidence of the grace that is already there. You're putting on the clothes of your new team. God's put you on the team, but you got to remember you're on the new team and you wear the new jersey. So putting on the godlike self is that evidence of the grace of God in your life. So... The big question is, and I know we always ask ourselves this when we get, we get down on ourselves and when we sin and when we have those unwelcome thoughts, why does the Christian still wear the old clothes? Why do you keep going back and putting them on? Why do I keep putting them on? They're tearing, they're frayed, they're ripping at the seams and we keep putting them on. It's because the old fashions always look new and fresh but they remain deceptive. They look chic, but they are deceiving you. You see, there's still a part of you in, in how you think or what you believe and how you prioritize life and how you view yourself and, and how you want other people to view you. Sometimes it's a doctrinal thing. Sometimes it's, it's, it's an addiction or just an unhealthy way of thinking or a, a very complicated dysfunctional relationship or trauma from the past. Well, whatever it is, there's a part of you that is still stitched to your old self. There's a part of you that still thinks you need to live by your former ways, your old desires, your old habits, your old responses to conflict. How did Paul put it in verse 22? He said, he said, our old selves belong to our former manner of life and that the former manner of life is corrupt. How is it corrupt? Through deceitful desires. You see that? So that even the Christian can be deceived. Even the Christian is susceptible to temptation. Being deceived to think and crave and fear and act out in old ways. Even the Christian can be deceived by the fashions of the worldly way of thinking and living. We can be deceived back into wanting what we used to want, acting and thinking the way we used to act and think. Unless, here's the key to not putting on the old clothes unless we are committed to active development. Remember that phrase from last week? Growing up in Christ, active development. We must be committed to the active development of our minds and of our wills. 
what makes us think the way we think, what makes us desire and react the way we desire and react. We must actively develop. This is why we call things like prayer and Bible meditation and fasting spiritual disciplines. We don't call them spiritual hobbies. They're spiritual disciplines because by them we are exercising our our minds and our souls and we are growing up in our faith. It is why we encourage community groups in our church. It is why we encourage active, consistent worship attendance. Yeah, I know you get sick and the kids get sick and, and you go on vacation, you go away, I get all of that. But we encourage active, consistent worship attendance and community groups. Why? Because of everything Paul has said in chapter four, the Holy Spirit works through our unity. The Holy Spirit works through our diverse spiritual gifts and experiences and skills to build each other up so that we together, through the Spirit of God, are helping one another put on the new clothes and keep on the new selves. So if you're not a Christian, I'm here to tell you today that you are wearing outdated, undersized lifestyles. They look good. When you read the newspaper and you watch movies and TV shows and you look at what your neighbors are doing, you feel good about yourself. You, you feel like you're in vogue. You feel like you're keeping in step with the Joneses or with, with what society, want, you know, you look at those influencers on social media and you're, you're, you're like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm in the mainstream. I'm doing what everybody does. I respond the way everybody responds. Now here's the thing. It's all outdated. It looks good. It's all outdated. It's undersized. And that's because you are calloused. You are spiritually, philosophically, mentally, and socially desensitized towards your creator. You are desensitized toward your, to, toward your creator's perfect ways, his wise ways, his just and loving plan for you and for human history. You think you're in vogue, but as Isaiah warned the believers in Old Testament times, it's all filthy rags in the sight of the great designer who has outfitted a new plan for humanity begun through his son, Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian or if you are not actively following Jesus, I'm telling you respectfully, but I hope you're going to be warned by this, your lifestyle in God's eyes is outdated, is worn out, and it's headed, it's headed to the heap that gets burned up in the end. But the Christ-like self is not deceived as the worldly self is deceived. The Christ-like self for the Christ follower is outfitted for eternity. The Christ-like self is outfitted, is robed in a garment that cannot fade, that will not fray, that will never stain, because it's adorned on you by a Father in heaven who loves you. You know, being robed by God throughout the Bible is a big deal. 
Being robed and clothed by God throughout the scriptures, it's a symbol of God's mercy, of his love, of the fact that he's, he's, he's brought you in, he's, he's covered you uh, in, in his clothing, he's, a, he's adopted you, he's forgiven you, he's reconciled you back, right? After Adam and Eve sinned, and God kicks them out of the garden, what did he do for them to cover their nakedness? He clothed them in animal skins, which meant some animal had to be sacrificed for their forgiveness, right? What, what's, what's the most famous parable of Jesus? A certain type of son, a prodigal son, who when his father was overjoyed to get him back, robed him in the family robe, and why, why, why were Jacob's sons so hatefully jealous of their little brother Joseph? Because Jacob had given him a coat that set him apart from all of his brothers. God robing you is a big deal in the Bible. And so after the exile, so the, the, the Jews, some of, most, many of them returned after the Babylonian exile. Many of the Jews around 500 BC came back to Israel and Jerusalem and they were very slowly and like with spiritual ADHD trying to build up the wall in Jerusalem and, and the temple again and the prophets were goading them and saying, come on, get to work. You need to be faithful. You need to build it all again. And the prophet Zechariah saw a vision. You can read about it in Zechariah chapter three. Zechariah saw a vision of the high priest of the day. His name was Joshua. Different Joshua than the famous one. Joshua the high priest is standing in the presence of God and his garments, his priestly robes are filthy. They're filthy. And at his right hand side is Satan accusing him, accusing him in the presence of God for his filthy garments, unable to fulfill his priestly duty, unable to represent Israel in the holy presence of a righteous God. Filthy, filthy, Satan is saying to Joshua the high priest. But here's the hope. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire. God was saying to Satan, who are you to accuse my chosen, my beloved children? Which is exactly what Paul called you in chapter one of Ephesians. His holy chosen people. Love from the foundation of the world. Who are you, Satan, to accuse my people? And so Zechariah continues to say what he saw in his amazing vision. And the angel said, remove the filthy garments from him. And then the Lord said to Joshua, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And my friend, uh, Pastor Tommy Wenger, he points out as he talks about this passage, he says, if you read it, of course, most of us are not going to do this. If you read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as you're reading this, every time you see the word Joshua, it's Jesus. Jesus. 
Because Jesus comes from Joshua. It's the same name. And so in the Greek Old Testament, every time you see this, it says Jesus, Jesus. Put my new robe on Jesus. Cover Jesus in my robes. Jesus, who would eventually come, the great high priest, and robe himself, listen to this, robe himself in our filthy stained, frayed, outdated worldliness. Jesus took your unrighteousness, your filthy rags, and he put them on himself. And he went to the cross so that God could robe us in Christ's righteousness. Sacrificed for us. It is fitting for the Christian to take off what is no longer fitting and to put on and to keep on your newly outfitted self that Jesus has made for you. Remember this. You wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. When you look in the mirror and you see that little kid that people picked on, or you see that little kid that split his pants in the fifth grade, or you see that person that has never been valued by the people that, are, that you respect the most. Or when you listen to the world and you read the articles and you watch TV and you feel like you're the one who's outdated, you're the one that's out of style, you're the one that should be embarrassed, you're the one that should be ashamed. Remember, in Christ, you wear the righteousness of God bought by the blood of Jesus lovingly adorned upon you by a heavenly father who has outfitted you for eternity. Keep that on. Keep it on. And that's why we pray, and that's why we meditate on scripture, and that's why we continue to worship together to help one another, to remind one another to put on and keep on the new self, the Christ-like self. Let's pray. Our Father, our great Father of grace and mercy, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we praise you that we can look up and see Jesus who made an end to all of our sin. Father, may we look upon Jesus Thank you for outfitting us with garments that will never spoil, perish, or fade. Forgive us for continuing to put the old jerseys back on. Father, as we grow up, may we actively encourage each other to pursue the new life, to live as the new self made in the image of God. Amen.